Live in the present and shape the future. Do not be casting lingering looks to the distant past, for the past has passed away, never again to return. Subramnaya Barathai. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week, and if uh, you have been listening uh, prior weeks, thank you for that as well. And for any newcomers, I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Please feel free to send any comments or feedback. Uh, I do enjoy hearing that. Um, I don't have much to go over in terms of um, questions or anything this week either. Um, Seems like it's been pretty straightforward. I haven't really dived too much into specific facts the last couple of weeks. And um, I think that's going to thankfully start to change here this week now that we're getting to specific uh, sites to talk about. Um, in fact, um, this week we will be talking about the ancient site of Marigar. Um, but before that, um, I do need to kind of get through a thousand or so years of history. Because um, again, we are covering uh, South Asia uh, between 8,000 to 6,000 BCE or BC. Um, so, Right at the start of our time frame, South Asia has been populated by smallish bands of hunter-gatherers, much like the rest of the world. Um, this is, um, you know, very much similar to how we've talked about all these other places. Um, in fact, Homo sapiens had been occupying, you know, parts of the subcontinent since between, you know, probably seventy to sixty-five thousand years ago, um, which is, you know, very you know, very quickly after we left Africa, we, again, we kind of blew past, uh, or blew through the Middle East to get to, uh, South Asia, and then, of course, to Southeast Asia, and then, um, Sahul, or the, uh, the Austronesian area. So, um, the region, because of that, you know, rapid expansion and, you know, very old expansion at this point, um, is very diverse in terms of, uh, groups living there. Uh, the region is also diverse when it comes to things like geography, climate, uh, plant life, animal life, weather, and geology. Um, in fact, I'd, you know, I'd be willing to say it's a little bit more diverse than you know every other place humans are living, with the exception of Africa, at least of the places we've talked about um, up till now. And again, with uh, the climate changing in Europe... Um, you know, Europe's going to become a little bit more diverse and uh, different, but um, prior to now, it's been, you know, very covered with ice, and that's true of also North Asia and the Eurasian steppe. So, um, you know, humans have been dealing with a lot here in this part of the world. Uh, Now, um, it should come as no surprise, but because of that, this has led to the various groups inhabiting the region to develop a number of, you know, survival skills extremely suited to um, the region as a whole, as well as the various subregions that they've occupied. Now, there would of course be your standard interactions between um, various groups. Of course, you would have your extended relations, um, you know, your your second or third or fourth cousins that you. Um, shared, you know, grandparents or great-grandparents with and probably have exchanged, um, you know, family members for marriage partners, things like that, as well as, you know, trade goods or um, things that you maybe couldn't find in your specific region. So, um, there's, you know, this is a standard interaction between, you know, various groups, uh, not just related groups, but neighbor groups as well. I'm sure, of course, there's some level of conflict between not only unrelated neighboring groups, but also between related groups as well. Um, but again, most of this kind of stuff you're talking about is small scale. Um, it's it's not happening, you know, in you know groups of hundreds fighting against other groups of hundreds. Um, so those are, of course, are your standard interactions. Um, trade, conflict, swapping of marriageable children between groups, etc. 
And DNA analysis shows that this is happening at very regular intervals. Um, but there are periods of time where this practice is more widespread than others and not all of the subregions practice it at the same time. And we will be going over these various subregions in the weeks to come, but this week and possibly, uh, or probably next week as well, we will be talking about the people and the sites around the Indus River system uh, with a specific focus again on the ancient site of Marigar. Um, and then, of course, we'll, we'll focus on other regions of India. And, uh, of course, as we progress and time goes on, we will uh, talk about how different uh, parts of the subcontinent are more open or more, I guess, active in trading with their uh, South Asian neighbors as well as their neighbors to um, the north in kind of the Tibetan Plateau area or to the north um, west towards um, uh, Persia or uh, Central Asia, and then, of course, uh, how they interact with their neighbors to the east. Uh, all of these happen at different levels at different times. <laughs> um, but before we get into all that, um, we do need to talk about the Indus River. Um, I went over some etymology last week, uh, and I, for whatever reason, I guess I was waiting... Uh, subconsciously, if nothing else, to kind of talk about uh, the sites around the Indus River uh, to get to kind of the etymology of that. And we touched on the origin of the name uh, when we talked about the term Hindu in the name Hindu Kush. Um, remember, in the past and in some places up to the modern day, Hindu was more of a linguistic term than a religious one. Um, Hindu is the Iranian kind of side of the Indo-Iranian spelling pronunciation of, uh, of the Indus River. Um, and this term got passed to the Greeks, and then the Greeks passed it to the Romans. Um, the pronunciation of the uh, Indo branch, or the Indian branch, um, that they used for the river was Sindhu. Uh, S-I-N-D-U. And we know this from... Sanskrit writings, and these are, you know, much later than our time period. Uh, but this word can mean river or sea in Sanskrit. So the fact that this is used to describe, you know, the river shows how important the Indus was to the people living in the area. Uh, it is the river, or, you know, the sea if you're living closer to the coast where uh, that kind of delta where the Indus is emptying out into the Indian Ocean. <clears throat> um, now, the fact that it is um, used for that purpose um, does not mean that, um, that the name wasn't used by the people living in our time frame. Uh, but it is possible that the name that we currently have may have been a translation of the older name. So basically, the people who developed Sanskrit or were speaking Sanskrit um, learned the name of the river, understood what it meant, uh, and then just used their word or their language for it. Um, and this is kind of one of those controversies I kind of hinted at last week. Um, the origins of uh, Vedic Sanskrit... Uh, and how old that language is and how long it's been used in the region is one of those controversies. And um, that's not one that we're going to dive too heavily into today. That's probably going to wait for uh, a little bit longer, but I might kind of touch on it a little bit more when we get back to the region. Now, um, now there is also the other possibility Um that the um, term was not related to um, a translation of an older name. Uh, it is possible that the Indus was not uh, the dominant branch of the water system at the time. Uh, the Indus, as we know it today, is fed by a number of rivers uh, flowing south and east from you know those nearby mountain ranges in the north. Uh, and there is evidence that some of these rivers were stronger at this earliest time frame. 
or if they were not stronger, they held a higher cultural importance. Um, again, we'll dive into that, but um, an example of that is the Sarasvati River, um, which these days is not quite as large as it was in the past. Um, if the, and, uh, you know, that was a very important uh, river. Uh, in future times, it will be kind of a uh, deified river. Uh, it will be uh, it will be the basis of an actual goddess. Uh, the you know uh, the river is the personification of the goddess essentially, uh, and they share that name. But again, um, that's kind of for future uh, focuses. Excuse me, I was just checking my notes here. Um, now. Uh, Miragar, though, is not located in this northern region. It is located on a plain just to the southeast of the foothills of the Toba Kakari Mountains. Uh, and remember, that is the mountains that roughly translate uh, to as the, the urge to repent mountains. Uh, but this plain uh, where Miragar is um, kind of founded is between uh, the Bolan and the I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. Um, Maurjig rivers. Um, now I could not find the entomology of these rivers to save my life. Um, I went through some Urdu uh, dictionaries uh, as well as some um, Baluchistan uh, or, or Balak. I, I forget the the term for the language um, of the, some of the people living in this region, but I, I could not, for the life of me, get a decent translation. Uh, I'm going to continue to look into it, um, but uh, it may take me a little while. And also, these rivers, I don't know if today they are actually connected to the Indus at all, and they, they may not have been in the past, but these kind of are formed by... Um, um, that water coming down from those mountains so it's kind of like a, a kind of a flat plain that uh, I'm sure you know it has at least a very uh, kind of localized area where it would be fertile um, today I think the outside of the area around the, the rivers themselves um, it can be a little dry just there's less rainfall in the region um, but of course that our time frame that we're talking about this week, uh, it was probably a little bit more uh, fertile due to more regular rainfall. Um, so uh, this location is kind of close to the middle of uh, the Indus River. It, it's kind of off a little bit to the west. Again, I don't think that the Bolan and uh, Mar uh, Marujiga rivers are directly connected, uh, but there would be there may be plenty of fertile lands between uh, where those two rivers meet and then the Indus to the east or southeast, as the case may be. Um, now, the initial site of this excavation took place between uh, 1974 and 1986. Uh, it was first excavated by a uh, Frenchman, uh, Jean-Francois Jarige, uh, or uh, uh, and his wife, Catherine, uh, who is herself also an archaeologist. Uh, and then it was re-examined again in uh, between 97 and 2000. So, um, yeah, there they've been a couple of different studies of the location. Um, now, this site is occupied for an extremely long period of time, uh, at least, you know, especially when compared to other sites that we've talked about so far. Um, there is signs of permanent habitation starting right around 7,000 BC, and it remains occupied uh, until sometime between either 2,500 or 2,000 BC. There is a little bit of disagreement on those, at least in the sources I've read. Um, uh, but uh, we're going to focus, of course, on the site's first thousand years of use. But, because this site is being used so long, it's going to be an excellent location for us to return to as we return to this region and go over changes that are happening um, here. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that uh, the location 
uh, undergoes, uh, you know, changes in terms of size and uh, population density and all that kind of good stuff. Um, I couldn't get a decent figure of population in our time frame. Um, and this is, uh, this is referred to as phase one. Um, this phase is going to last, uh, or is said to have lasted between 7,000 and 5,500 BCE. And this, uh, this phase of the site is a ceramic, so they do not have pottery, which is, again, like many of the places that we have talked about further west, um, with the ex possible exception of some of those um, early ceramic using places in um, what is now Israel or Palestine, and then, of course, some of those places out in um, kind of northwest Africa, where, uh, again, those uh, those people living there probably developed their own version of pottery, uh, independent of the people in Asia, or uh, East Asia, I guess, modern China, um, or modern Korea, who had developed uh, pottery, you know, in, you know, well before the time frame, the time frame we're covering. Uh, but pottery will not become, you know, ubiquitous in this area until much uh, later, until our next season. Uh, but the site, as it appears uh, now, um, is not all that large. It only covers about two square kilometers, uh, which is about 500 uh, acres. Um, and it's a very small uh, village. Uh, it will eventually grow, of course, uh, as time goes on. Um, the site will eventually get to the part, point where it covers um, a few different kind of hills in the area. Uh, I think, um, well, they're hills now. At the time, they were probably plains, but of course, as time goes on and, you know, you get the buildings um, being uh, erected and then, uh, you know, f knocked over to make room for bigger buildings... <laughs> Excuse me. You'll of course uh, see those mounds or tails begin to form, um, and of course, due to the long period of time that the site's occupied, uh, there's a lot of different artifacts, and it can be hard to kind of uh, date them. Um, at least for me, who is a layman and has not, you know, doesn't have direct access, I can only go by uh, the sources, and they don't always make it easy to determine when a specific artifact is from. <laughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> but um, due to the size and the time frame, we can you know make some you know assumptions about it based on kind of what we learned uh, at other places um, around the same time frame. Um, uh, this site does not have uh, the round houses that are. Uh, that show up in some of the uh, sites in the Middle East in the early phases. I think they they start here with um, with the square uh, houses or dwellings, uh, and they're almost all just homes, uh, and they're made from mud, mud bricks, um, sun dried mud bricks. Um, and they um, they do seem to have uh, some divisions in the home interior, and they're they're kind of made into corners, so. Um, you know, there may have been two or three uh, families living in these homes with, um, you know, um, uh, a space set aside for storage or maybe a couple and uh, two or three kids or however you want to divide it. Um, I really need to sit down and do the episode where we talk about uh, urbanization, as it were, and the progress from, uh, from villages to cities. Uh, but we're not there yet, so that'll probably be kind of one of the capstones of this season or maybe the starting point for uh, next season. Um, but what we can tell is that there is uh, practicing uh, practices associated with uh, farming or the early kind of, I guess, uh, horticulture phase of um, agricultural development. <laughs> now... This is where we get to one of those uh, controversies that I talked about in the last episode and kind of mentioned briefly in this episode. Uh, there is a debate about whether or not um, the people here developed farming on their own. 
Um, there are those that say, well, no, they, they imported it from their neighbors from Persia who uh, kind of, you know, came up with farming and that spread out from there. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, pushback from that and saying, no, that these the, this is a site that uh, developed farming on its own. Uh, and then, um, you know, kind of came up with it independently. And then, of course, you have um, other people who say that, no, this is actually the origin of agriculture, and it spread west from here. Um, I'm going to kind of go into a little bit of each of these theories and talk about um, why I think um, each of them is wrong to an extent, and then how some of them are right to an extent. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. So, personally, uh, based on what I've read and seen and just looking at other sites, I believe that this site did uh, independently begin to practice that early form of agriculture that we've talked about. Um, you know, they're, they're picking wild strains of uh, grasses and grains, um, and in India, they have access to some fruits uh, that are tropical or near tropical, like uh, we mentioned last week, jujubes, or Chinese dates, as they're sometimes referred to as. Um, so I've, I fully believe that they're practicing this very early form of uh, horticulture or, you know, basic agriculture. Uh, and that they are, you know, working with some of the local crops that they have available. And it's starting, you know, right around 7 or 6500 BC, somewhere in that time frame. And once you get around uh, that time, 6500 or 6500, I should say, um, and then maybe you jump forward another 500 years or so, um, I think that they've probably developed more of their local crop. But uh, they're probably also starting to see more visitors and traders from um, from the the West, um, and I think that some of the crops that were developed there um, probably replaced these the the crops that they had sort of developed um, at least to an extent. I don't think they fully displaced them, um, but I feel like you know. The crops from the west, uh, Persia, Mesopotamia, those areas, um, have been um, cultivated and uh, selected for, you know, higher agricultural production for longer. Um, again, no one is consciously trying to edit these plants, at least uh, not when they're first starting this. So I think eventually, you know, through trade and other things... Um, the more, I guess you can call it, um, uh, Middle Eastern or uh, West Asian crops become more important, um, at least in this part of uh, South Asia. Um, there are other places in South Asia that will not grow these kinds of wheat and barley uh, coming from the West or that had grown independently independently. Uh, in this part of the world. Uh, rice will come from uh, China and Southeast Asia and will become very important in um, southern India or um, I guess the northeast of India. Uh, there's kind of a big divide between grains and grasses and and rice uh, in you know parts of India. You know uh, certain uh, areas are you know more suited to you know different crops. And that's something we'll dive into. So, um, that's kind of what I think. I think, you know, the uh, people living in South Asia, you know, they were starting to feel probably pressure uh, from some environmental changes caused by the ending of the Younger Dryas or just um, the, you know, melting of the ice caps. You know, if Central Asia maybe caused more flooding and caused kind of an explosion of growth 
in the uh, north and the west of the subcontinent, uh, and it made you know agriculture or at least um, gathering much more important than hunting. Uh, and I think that kind of drove people to experiment and uh, occupy this part of the region um, much more. Um, it made occupying this part of the re- uh, region much more attractive. Uh, and that, you know, that population density kind of kicks off the slow process towards urbanization. Uh, and then, of course, you know, with more people living in the area, um, you know, they're attracting, you know, or they're interacting with these uh, small groups traveling from Central Asia and Mesopotamia and Persia. Uh, and, you know, that draws people in due to increased trade and that, you know, those small groups kind of learn about the region and um, just due to the fertility of the area, uh, you know, kind of call, uh, kind of basically creates a cascading effect um, of making it a desirable location for people to move into or at least to trade with. And trade's going to be vital to this part of India. And we'll, of course, dive into that. Um, but at least in the early part of uh, the Copper Age and early Bronze Age, um, trade is more important to India than any other type of um, uh, you know activity. It's more important than war. It's more important than founding colonies. Uh, trade is kind of the lifeblood of the region. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll get into all that later. So why did these theories kind of come about um, of, you know, agriculture being introduced from the outside or, um, you know, um, Indians developing or the ancient Indians developing agriculture and spreading it elsewhere? Well, part of the reason that it was, you know, kind of pushed for so long that agriculture was kind of adopted from the... Um, the Middle East is that uh, that was kind of the theory of how agricultural spread everywhere. Um, the agricultural revolution is a term that I'm sure many of us, at least in the English-speaking world, are, is very familiar with. Um, it's also something that has been started to be disproven and probably isn't a very accurate term. Uh, it was originally thought that. Um, by some of the earliest people kind of investigating the area that agriculture was developed very quickly, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like over, you know, maybe a thousand or two thousand years by a couple of people. And then that this surplus food allowed them to grow rapidly and expand out and, you know, send all these smaller colonies uh, to Europe, uh, Africa, or at least North Africa, um, you know, South Asia, East Asia, those type of places. Now, as we have seen and have discussed in several episodes, um, this picture is not very, not very accurate. Uh, we can see that there are a few places close by um, to South Asia, I should say, that have been practicing some type of basic, um, you know, wild horticulture. They're they're not you know you know, planting out harvests and things like that. They're, they're just playing with these wild strains and, um, sources for these different plants. And, you know, through interacting with these wild strains, they're probably picking up parts of how to practice agriculture. And then they're slowly but surely kind of mastering that. Uh, so it's not something that developed quickly. In fact, we, again, we have seen evidence that, uh, this has been going on for, you know, at this point in our time frame, you know, maybe since 11,000, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe a little bit less. Um, but it's something that is happening not just in the Middle East, but it was something that's begun to happen in Africa, especially with um, the climate starting to be a little bit more conducive to uh, grasses and grains rather than nuts uh, in West Africa specifically. So, and these are not places that are easily connected at this point in time. Um, and begin because of the Younger Dryas, you know, uh, South Asia and the Middle East and or Persia, Mesopotamia, 
there are again routes through it so it's a little bit better connected than say um you know the middle east and west africa or you know even uh northwest africa um but it's still not something that you're seeing huge amounts of people making regular trips through so you know while i do think uh just due to the evidence that we found agriculture definitely spread through the middle east to europe i do think and we'll talk about it more later that uh in south asia and east asia they developed their own types of agriculture uh independently of each other or at least they were in the process of developing it when uh maybe these traders from the west came up and you know it's like hey we have these seeds they're really easy to grow uh they might work better in this environment than you know what you were working with uh yourselves um and you know it take it from there uh, at least that's my theory um now as for you know india developing agriculture and then spreading it to the west um this is kind of a uh, so this is kind of something that's come up recently within like the last um, 20 years or so for a number of reasons. Um, and part of it has to do with, of course, you know, I, I, you know, again, I'm jumping way ahead, but this is more modern uh, history and politics than, uh, than ancient history. And we'll dive on to all this subject, so of course, much later. But uh, due to the fact that the Indians were um, colonized and controlled from Great Britain for a couple hundred years um, and some of their cultural achievements being downplayed or in some cases uh, forgotten or erased, um, there is kind of a uh, kind of a urge or resurgence in uh, Indian pride and nationalism. Um, it, there is something called the Out of India Theory. Um, there are a couple different versions of it. Uh, it's pushed in some cases by uh, Hindu nationalists. Um, where, you know, basically everything, you know, that civilization is based on comes from India. Um, human, they don't deny that humans evolved in Africa. Um, but they kind of say that, you know, that was just, you know, tribal hunter-gatherers. No one developed any kind of agriculture or anything that led to civilization until they got into India. And then once they were in India and developed this advanced civilization and spread it to the rest of the world, you know, that is the out of India, India theory kind of summarized and just kind of put out there. Um, now, I think we've talked about you know, dates and things. Um, there is no actual archaeological evidence to support any of the out of India stuff, uh, at least when it comes to the development of agriculture. There are, of course, things that India does develop and does send to the rest of the world that are very important. Um, they're a vital link between East Asia and Europe uh, for a number of products uh, at various times. Um, so, India's role has been downplayed in terms of Western history. Whether intentional or not, um, there are certain things that, yes, I think it was intentionally downplayed. But in a lot of ways, it's something that you know people didn't realize until they actually dive in and study it. Um, so you know they do have some points where you know they are rightfully upset that their kind of contribution to human history has been downplayed and or erased. Um, but their response to it is rather um, ridiculous and childish in some ways. But um, also another problem with this is, um, you know, India is divided. Uh, well, it was divided. Uh, British India was much larger than the country of India today, of course. Um when India was granted independence, it was divided into two states, uh, the Muslim state of Pakistan and the um, more Hindu state of India. Of course, uh, India has a number of other 
religious groups living in it, um, Sikhs, uh, Buddhists, um, uh, uh, Jains, of course, and then uh, there's even, um, not even counting uh, the Christians that, you know, were converted by, like, British missionaries, uh, the Eastern Church, like, there's an Eastern, like, native Indian church that has been there since, you know, you know, since basically um, St. Thomas uh, went and proselytized there. Uh, there are, you know, very old, uh, ancient sects of Christianity, uh, homegrown uh, Indian Christians, if you will. Um, so, you know, that's another kind of plot point in this kind of discussion. Um, obviously, Pakistan and India have not always had the best relationship. In fact, I think you would say that uh, for most of their histories, they've had very bad relationships with each other. Um, and of course, then India, or I'm sorry, then Pakistan had uh, Bangladesh, or uh, what was then referred to as East Pakistan, break away and declare independence from it, um, just due to the fact that they were unable to connect their borders. Uh, there's the region of Kashmir, which India and Pakistan uh, still lay, lay claims over. So um, there is, of course, some degree of hard feelings between, um, you know, uh, Hindu nationalists or even just right-wing um, Indians uh, that, you know, they, you know, they say, you know, Pakistan is kind of taking control of your history. These people living in Marigar uh, were not, you know, they were not Muslims. They were, you know, Hindus or uh, whatever religion, you know, Hinduism evolved from. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of controversy. Whereas the people in Pakistan say, look, you know, we, you know, our ancestors converted to Islam, but they were, they were living here just as long as yours were, you know, so there's there's a lot of arguments to go into this, and um, part of that quote that I had at the start of this episode was actually um, actually it was made by uh, a Tamil, um, I believe he's a historian, uh, and I know I butchered his name, but uh, Subramnya uh, Bara, uh, Barathai. Um, he uh, he was some of the things I've been reading, um, kind of getting ready for this episode. Um, you know, he's very much in the, you know, camp of, you know, trying to, I guess, trying to downplay some of the tensions between, uh, these numerous groups. Um, and, you know, I think that's probably, I know it's hard to do. I'm a big history fan. I, I, I love this stuff. Um, but I think, you know, if, you know, laying claim to history is preventing you from moving forward, um, you know, it might be time to take a step back and maybe just agree to disagree until um, you can find, you know, more uh, evidence. And India is some place that is going to see more and more, um, you know, ar uh, archaeological uh, discoveries. Um, there have been some sites in South India um, recently uh, from the uh, late Bronze, early Iron Age uh, that has actually has a ton of really cool evidence of trade um, between India, as well as, um, you know, showing evidence that um, even some people from the Roman Empire had moved there uh, and become either mercenaries or sailors uh, for the region. So uh, there's a lot of stuff in India to kind of go over and discuss. And there's a lot of stuff for, you know, for both uh Indians and Pakistani people to be proud of for their contributions uh, to, I guess, human uh, discovery. So I, I don't want to come off as too critical of either groups because, again, I do think that they do have some evidence uh, and some, you know, real uh, arguments to make about not only their contributions. Uh, but how those contributions have kind of been hidden or erased in some cases. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, come off as too harsh. Um, but I will, of course, criticize anything I feel like uh, does not make sense or there is no evidence to back it up. Now, 
we could find a site in India that dates back to 15,000 years ago and they have all these crops that we've, you know, somehow haven't been able to find any traces of uh, that show that, you know, these crops were developed and all that in India. Um, but um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if we see more sites like Marigar. Um, India, of course, has uh, a very large uh, population density in areas around rivers. Uh, and Marigar is one of these sites that that's going to be very true. Um, I did mention I was having trouble getting like numbers in terms of population. Um, but I think at its height, there has been some suggestion that um, Marigar could have had up to 24,000 people living in it. And that is a massive number. Um, especially even if it, even if it was only around, um, you know, 3000 BC when they got there, the last 400 years, that is a massive number of people. Um, now I have not been able to find a source for those claims other than, um, again, a few of those Hindu nationalist sites and, uh, a couple of places, um, that are um, non-primary English speaking. They don't have their sources to anything that I could trace um, and just verify. Um, so that is a number that pops up in a couple of different places, but I cannot find the original source for it. Um, I don't even think that is on Wikipedia, uh, which is something that um, you know you you should probably take into account um, when you kind of talk about flimsy sources. But it would not surprise me. If that were, you know, a population of a city uh, and the kind of people living on the outskirts and in the kind of towns and surrounding villages, um, that I could very easily see 24,000 people living there. Um, but, um, yeah, so that's that's something to kind of keep in mind. And um, hopefully it's something that we will... Um, get more evidence of, and I can find some better cited sources. Um, but uh, to kind of go back to um, some of the innovations taking place uh, in Marigar, um, if you haven't listened to our domestication episode, I highly recommend you do. Um, part of the reason I believe that uh, people in Marigar had started to develop and practice their own forms of agriculture is because they had also started to develop and uh, domesticate cattle, the local zebu cows, those these humped cattle. Um, we can tell from genetic evidence that they were domesticated in a separate event from the cattle uh, from the Middle East. Um, now, since then, of course, they have had uh, different breeds and um, lineages intermixed between the two, as well as with some uh, wild strains from Africa, um, but the the initial domesticated uh, groups for both um, uh, the aurochs, the I guess the European aurochs or the um, and the Indian aurochs um, happened at around the same time, but uh, you know there's no evidence of intermixing between those two strains until much later. Um, so, uh, and also I believe there are certain strains of goats and sheep that are, um, local to South Asia. And then again, you see evidence of them later, uh, mixing with, um, uh, sheep and goats from, uh, Central Asia and, uh, the Middle East. Uh, and that happens much earlier than it does with cattle. I think cattle being as large and needing as much uh, grain or fodder uh, as they do, uh, it makes them traveling through the mountains not nearly as viable as goats and sheep. Um, zebu cows don't really get out of India until um, until later, once they master uh, sea travel. Uh, I think at that point you begin to see uh, their cows in other parts of the world and interbreeding with uh, cows from uh, the world. The West. Um, <clears throat> so that's again, that's one of the reasons I think they 
they developed their own form of agriculture and they just adapted the seeds uh, later because, again, they were a little bit further along, I guess, the domestication uh, type uh situation but there are things of course that uh eventually will come up that can only have come from india um now this doesn't show up in marigar um but things like uh, black pepper uh comes from india uh, i think uh, typically the south of india uh so again this is just one of those that's just another thing that i think fits into uh, my theory and i why i think it's correct and it should also be noted uh, that uh, Jean-Francois Girage, uh, the, the man who initially excavated uh, Marigar, he was of the opinion that the Indians had developed agriculture uh, independently from the West. Um, uh, he was very much that, you know, they came up with their own systems, and then, you know, over time there was kind of this back and forth between the Indians and uh, the Persians. Um, now, of course, Mariar is not just, um, you know, doing, uh, uh, agricultural practicing there. Of course, they are developing their own kinds of, um, ornamentation and art. Um, in fact, uh, unlike places in the Middle East, uh, Marigar seems to have a lot of grave goods. Um, their, their people are buried with, um, uh, baskets uh weaved from reeds and things like that um they have of course their uh, stone and bone uh bone tools that they would have used they had uh, kinds of um beads and bangles made from shells um uh, limestone uh, turquoise uh, lapis lazuli that we talked about last time uh, they probably were getting it either from you know journeys to the north or you know, trading with people living there. Um, they, of course, use sandstone. Um, they also have figurines of uh, female and animal figures. And this is something that you would find in both male and female graves. Um, though it did appear that men typically have more goods buried with them. Um, now, why that is, we can't say. Maybe... Maybe ownership was more important to men. Um, maybe, you know, they were the ones producing tools. Um, and Or maybe, you know, women were more likely to pass their wealth on than men. Or it could have just been good old-fashioned misogyny. Who knows? Um, it's hard to say, of course, at this range. Um, now, let's see. Uh, well, let's see, go through my notes here, excuse me. Um, hmm. Okay, this is phase one stuff. Yes, okay, good. Okay, so, um, there now there are other sites, uh, in the general area, um, that are contemporaneous with, uh, Marigar. However, they don't show up until, um, the later part of our timeline. In fact, they may not even show up until like the mid 5000s BC, 5500 BC, which again is still in the phase one uh, period. Um, so um, it could be that Marigar is growing, you know, well enough and fast enough that they are establishing um, colonies, or maybe they're living so well, or they have so much. Uh, excess food that it's kind of causing um, people to kind of imitate them and try to develop their own uh, sedentary sites. Um, but whatever the case, uh, Marigar is not living on its own. It is not a self-sufficient society. They are still trading with peoples to their south and east. Um, this is something that you'll see well into uh, recorded history. Um, civilizations or cities in this region uh, are always trading uh, or trading with um, the tribal people living to their uh, east, south, and west. Um, let's see. Ah, this is interesting, and I couldn't again find the date. This may have been um, part of 
phase one or phase two, which is the next period. But um, there is evidence that um, that they were practicing a form of uh, medicine uh, that was a little bit more advanced, uh, invasive, if you will, uh, that they're practicing dentistry here. Um, that they have uh, showed that they were drilling into the teeth of a human that was alive. Um, now we talked about how there are those areas in or those sites in Persia where they were removing the teeth, and they did this for you know basically all the adult males. However, um, they had eleven um, molars, and then they had basically kind of made like weird crowns for them to kind of help them chew. Um, and I think again, this is phase one, so nine. Yeah, so this this is happening at this early phase, I believe, um, unless I did my timeline wrong, which is certainly possible. So, yeah, though they they are they are you know doing something that we have evidence of nowhere else uh, that they are attempting you know um, live medicine. This is something that's physical. It's not just a spiritual practice. It's not like calling on the spirits or anything like that. Um, and this is for, uh, this is not just one or two things. This is, uh, I think they had found four, no, it was nine bodies, uh, that had evidence of this, um, uh, of this practice. And you can, uh, you can read about it. This was a August, uh, no, sorry, April 2006 article in Nature Magazine. It was written by, uh, Copa et al. is the author. Um, yeah, so they, and they did a follow-up, looks like they did a follow-up on an issue of November 2007. Yeah, November 27th, 2007. So there's a couple of different, um, articles you can read from Nature, uh, that talk about this discovery. Uh, let's see. And Marigar is really interesting, because I knew almost nothing about it. I knew it was old. Uh, and I, again, I had seen some videos where it was mentioned, um, but I didn't realize, um, how many artifacts they had found from this early phase. I knew that they had found a lot, um, in the kind of run up to, uh, the, the copper and bronze ages, um, which we haven't gotten to yet. We're, we're getting close, um. Uh, but yes, so this uh, this period here, uh, the the Marigar period one, the aceramic, um, we can see that it grows fairly quickly. Uh, within fifteen hundred years, um, you know, it, it gets uh, it gets a lot bigger. Um, and yeah, okay, so yeah, that's for the next part. Um, they they do develop. Um, uh, their own type of um, pottery, uh, or at least their own art style. Uh, I don't think the technique is unique um, to them, uh, but they, they definitely have their own kind of aesthetics. Um, they have terracotta that they come up with, uh, limestone, burnt limestone, which we saw in places like Cyprus and um, uh, some places in uh, Anatolia that had this, uh, so that this is very much probably in the run-up to them developing um, pottery or metallurgy, which is kind of metallurgy is kind of a offshoot of uh, pottery making. Uh, so yeah, Marigar, Marigar has a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, but damn, I've. I just realized that this has been almost an hour recording. So I did kind of ramble a little bit and I did talk about a little bit more modern politics than I'd like to, especially a country that, you know, again, I don't live in. Um, and I, I hope I didn't come off as too dismissive, but, um, I do think again that, you know, credit where it's due, that there is, you know, plenty of evidence for, um, India developing its own types of, agricultural practices. And we talked about that in uh, the domestication of, I believe, plants. Um, they will be heavy practitioners of slash and burn agriculture, which is not something you necessarily see too much in the Middle East, which is another reason that I think they developed their own kind of uh, plants. 
uh, or at least their own strain of wild plants. Um, of course, they have more forests in South Asia than they do in the Middle East, even at our time frame where, again, um, probably greener than you would expect in both of these places just due to more natural rainfall. Um, another factor that I haven't really talked about too much is um, geological in nature. Um, so we have seen sites that are on very active um, geological areas. Of course, Anatolia, uh, as we learned a couple of months ago, very uh, geographically active. Um, there are, of course, rivers and lakes and things like that that are affected by these types of events. Um, you do see that happen sometimes in Mesopotamia, uh, where, you know, at least towards the north where the Tigris and Euphrates are forming from the mountains in southern Anatolia or uh, from the Zagros, where there are times where earthquakes do affect their flow. However, uh, this is rare, uh, and it's not something that you have to worry about too much in Anatolia because, again, the rivers aren't that massive there. But in, you know, India, or what will become Pakistan and uh, the Indian subcontinent, um, the Indus is not the easiest river to settle or control. Um, due to the nature of the environment and the geological, I guess, activity in the area, um, the Indus is a very unpredictable river. Um, and I'm going to, of course, dive more into this later, and I have to do some more research to confirm some of this, but things like irrigation control, water control is not very um, easy to implement in this area because, again, of those variances in um, not just rainfall or a seismic activity, but again, uh, we'll see different parts of the Indus become more active or less active as time goes on. And uh, you have things like mudslides uh, and, of course, the monsoon. I haven't even talked about the monsoon season. Um, this is very important to uh, the environment. Um, you know, those rainy monsoon seasons, you know, that helps or hurts fertility. Um, and of course, it also makes the environment more dangerous in some situations if you get too much rain. Um, so there's a lot more natural dangers associated with this part of the world uh, than, say, the Middle East. Not to say that it was uh, easy living those other places. Of course, you know, I think we've we've talked about how hard it could be uh, living day to day, especially if you were low on uh, animal resources, um, if you were big game hunters, and of course you lose all these larger herds, um, which is again something I think is is happening, which is part of the reason for uh, the rush for domestication of both plants and animals. Uh, but again, I think, uh, yeah, this is a much longer episode than I planned. I did go off on a couple of tangents. Um, I hope I didn't hurt anyone's feelings or feel uh, anyone uh, should be insulted. I, I don't want to do that. Um, I just think that there are some things that need a lot more evidence before you should put them forward for any type of theory. But... Um, you know, we'll keep we'll keep researching and reviewing. I I might find out that I'm completely wrong and that there is more evidence than than I've been able to read. Um, it's not always easy to find easy English sources for some of these areas in the world, um, but I am going to keep trying. And if you have any that you'd like to recommend, uh, please feel free. Um, you can leave me any feedback or criticism or um, just reviews. Uh, any kind of criticism constructive otherwise um you can reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com or you can reach me uh via twitter uh direct message there uh you can also contact me on youtube you can comment on a video and i believe we can send direct messages that way um and speaking of uh if you have not uh please feel free to subscribe there i know uh audio podcast is not the best place for our 
you know, a video site is probably not the best place for an audio only podcast, but, um, you know, I do hope to have some type of, uh, more videos there at one, one time, uh, or in the future. Um, but I am slowly in the process of putting my backlog up. Um, I'm in season three now. Um, I think I'm getting to Cyprus this week, or if not Cyprus, at least Jericho. Um, so we're, we're getting there. We're gonna, we're gonna make it. <laughs> um, uh, Let's see. Uh, ah, uh, next week's episode should be up at its regular time. It may be an hour or two delayed. Um, the bachelor party I went to a couple of weeks ago. Um, the wedding is this upcoming weekend, which I don't have to travel anywhere for. It is in it is in my city, uh, but I will be busy hanging out with friends and uh, loved ones uh, for that event. So. Um, I should have everything ready to go. I sh- nothing should interfere with me recording at my normal time. Um, possibly maybe a hangover, but we'll, we'll see. So, um, Regardless, if it's late next week, it will not be more than a couple of hours late. So, uh, Thank you all. Again, feedback, or at revpod at gmail.com or via Twitter. Um, I'd like to thank you all again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed, and I hope to have you back next week. Thank you, and have a good day. Goodbye.